Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Viruses challenge our concept of what being alive means. They're just little pieces of DNA or RNA packaged in a protein bubble. That's it. They don't have cells, can't make their own energy, just instructions in a protective packaging. Instructions to make more virus. That's all they do. Infect cells, take over their machinery, and force them to pump out copies. Mistakes in these copies can lead to mutation, can lead to a change in the virus. And if this change gives an edge, well then that mutated virus will make more copies, infect more cells. The highest stakes question in disease emergence is what's going to cause the next pandemic. Kia ora, naumai haramai. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Clerk and Canada home. From single-celled organisms to plants to humans, viruses affect all life on Earth. Whether you label them as an inanimate bag of chemicals or a living thing, their impact is undeniable. They shepherd evolution of living things, but they have their own ongoing evolution too. And that's what Dr. Gemma Geegan studies. Well, for the best part of a decade now, I have been interested in virus evolution, um, trying to understand how viruses evolve, how they jump to new hosts and then spread through new populations, and what are the sort of processes and mechanisms that both help and hinder viruses to jump to new hosts and, and emerge in new hosts and then cause disease outbreaks. You're probably all up to speed on this virus evolution lingo and possibly even recognise her voice, because never has Gemma's work been more mainstream than the last few years. 14 scientists will track the makeup of the virus and exactly how it spread throughout the country. Gemma Geegan, a senior lecturer from the University of Otago's Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and will head the team. She joins me now. Kia ora, Dr Geegan. Notably, two of these new cases reported are of the Omicron subvariant BA2.75. So joining us now to explain what this means is University of Otago evolutionary biologist and virologist Dr Gemma Geegan. Dr Gemma Geegan, a virologist at Otago University, says she and other researchers are eager to get a sample to help identify the strain of the virus involved. She joins us now. Morena. Morena. What do we know about this case? She's still involved in sequencing COVID cases. But before the pandemic and the other side of my research is really about trying to understand the diversity of viruses that exist in nature to then understand the sort of the mechanisms behind virus host jumping and then spread into new hosts. But what we've found is that we've only really characterised far less than about 1% of the total number of viruses that exist in the world. This, Gemma says, is because of two main reasons. First, we've been real biased in our sampling. 
We've been, I guess naturally, mostly interested in human viruses or economically important plant or animal viruses. We haven't really been that bothered with the whole range of viruses that infect different species of wildlife. But that is where human viruses come from, jumping from other hosts to infect us. And the second reason is the technology we've been using. Early methods of virus identification would have involved trying to grow up viruses in the lab, which was real difficult to do. But... Genomics technology has sort of revolutionised this area. Now we can unbiasedly sample an individual or a species and reveal the complete virome. So that's all the viruses that infect that individual. And we don't have to know what we're looking for. We can just use sequencing technology to reveal viruses and other pathogens as well. Other pathogens such as bacteria or fungi. Because every living thing uses nucleic acids as part of their system of growing and multiplying and passing on their genes, they leave clues that genome sequencing can pick up. In Demis Lab, there are people sampling healthy wildlife to check for the virome of those species. But there are also others trying to unravel pathogen puzzles. Like, what are the viruses or other microorganisms causing sickness in our native wildlife, such as the rare and endangered hoiho, or yellow-eyed penguin. They are affected by what we know as two diseases right now. Dr. Janelle Wierenga is a postdoctoral researcher in Gemma's lab. One is one that's been known for a couple decades called diphtheric stomatitis, or other people know it as avian diphtheria. These cause basically sores in the mouth of the chicks, and then they can't feed, then they get emaciated and, and can potentially die from it. So it causes quite a bit of morbidity and some mortality. The second disease has been noticed just in the last few years. Alarm bells were rung when people came across chicks that were struggling to breathe. And this disease is very bad news. A mysterious illness has left dozens of yellow-eyed penguin chicks dead. The small population of Hoiho in the South Island is already under intense pressure, and wildlife experts say this new disease is not helping. They seem to uh, die from that disease and very quickly, usually within 24 hours. And on postmortem, when they look at the lungs of these chicks, they are filled with blood. And so initially it was called red lung disease, but um, now kind of looking at different ways to call it an undiagnosed respiratory disease. We don't know the cause of that disease. This is where Janelle's work comes in. We don't know if it's a virus, bacteria, protozoa, fungal organism. Uh, virus is probably more likely, we think, at this stage for at least the diphtheric somatitis. Um, they have looked for viruses, but this is the first time we've looked at what we call a next-generation sequencing or looking at all of the pathogens, and metagenomic approach. The other disease, the respiratory disease, it's probably less likely associated with an infection, but with that one, we do have to rule that out along with we're going to look for um, toxins. Potentially, we'd like to look for nutritional causes or genetic causes in that way that could be contributing. But we have to start with this first. This kind of work investigating species that are in trouble is highly collaborative. They work with IWI, Department of Conservation, other researchers and species advocates to tackle these questions. Janelle is a trained vet, so she knows a bit about the pathology side of things too. And so last summer, she headed out with the Yellow-Eyed Penguin Trust and the Department of Conservation to help sample chicks. 
So going out with the people who are involved, the dedicated people who are involved in taking care of them, evaluating them, was very helpful for me to be able to see what the disease looks like, how it's affecting them, how hard it is to get these samples. Uh, we tried to make it easy for the people who were getting the samples, but also less invasive for the chicks because that's really important to decrease the stress. And also to see how much you have to crawl through the bushes and up these cliffs and down these cliffs to go check the chicks. I was also involved in at times when we had to uplift some of the sick chicks. And so if you're carrying these little chicks in your hands across boulders with seals, you know, that you didn't want to step on, you have these precious cargo, it's very good to be able to go out there and, and be involved in that also. They took mouth and cloacal swab samples from healthy chicks, but also from hoiho that seemed to have the red mouth sores typical of avian diphtheria. The cloaca is the single opening for intestinal, reproductive and urinary tract of birds. Janelle also got samples of tissue from chicks that had died with the unknown lung disease. Once back in the lab, these samples are frozen until Janelle is ready for the next step. We have these kits that we use in order to extract the nucleic acids. And primarily we're looking to extract RNA, mainly so that we don't miss the potential for RNA viruses. And also that would give us an indication of potentially what's replicating. So all organisms should be making RNA. And so we should be able to then identify also those other potential uh, pathogens too, beyond just RNA viruses. There are both DNA and RNA viruses. They use either DNA or RNA to code the information about how to make more virus. As Janelle said, she's going to focus on RNA. This is because living things that use DNA to code their information also make RNA as a messenger molecule. So they will leave RNA clues she can pick up. And it means she won't overlook any RNA viruses. With about 400 samples to extract RNA from, Janelle is getting a bit of help from honor student and research assistant, Lauren Lim. So Lauren is um, actually doing the extractions right now from the samples. Um, and so you'll see her pipetting different solutions in the vials themselves. And, and right now the RNA is basically, we hope, stuck to these little magnetic beads. And we use a magnetic bead rack that then we can hopefully keep them keep the RNA still on them. Once the RNA is extracted out of the samples, they will check to see if they have enough and then send it out for sequencing. Then they send us back the data, and then that data is what we work on in the computer with different software in order to look at those little pieces of RNA, basically, um, all the little bases, and then we, the computer puts them all together and lines them up, and then those are then matched to a database that's out there called GenBank. And then it tells us whether, you know, do we have a virus in there? Do we have a bacteria in there? What type of viruses? So it's, if it's out there in the database, then they can identify it. Unfortunately, because there's so much we don't know about viruses, there's a lot that don't match to anything. That's why the surveillance of these, kind of some of the other work that people are doing in this lab, is really important so that then we can have those sequences out there in the database and then can match them up. Janelle is hoping the results will give her a bit more information on the avian diphtheria culprit, so that next year she can follow up with more in-depth research 
and confirmation. This is a two-year project. The next round of chicks that hatch then, then we might be able to focus in a little bit more on what is causing it just to give us more supportive evidence that, for instance, if we find a virus, we can know what type of samples to take and then just look for that specific virus to see if it is causing a problem. For the respiratory disease, my hope would just be to narrow down these broad factors that could be causing it just so that we can focus in on where are we going next for a project. I don't think that will be included in my project because it's much bigger, but then hopefully we can get a PhD student or two, another postdoc, to come in and start work on that. The lung disease is kind of tricky because it seems that chicks get it, but not adults, so maybe it's not something infectious. It may take a while to figure it out, but ultimately everybody is hoping to help the hoi ho by getting to the bottom of what is causing these diseases. So that's the focus of Janelle's work. But others in the lab are working on that wider problem she mentioned, knowing the extent of viral diversity that's out there. Because if it's not in the database, it can't be matched with. To find this regular diversity of viruses in native species, you have to sample healthy animals and then look to see what viruses are there. And this hasn't been done for a lot of native species in Aotearoa. PhD student Stephanie Waller is trying to fill some of this gap. I'm trying to discover viruses in New Zealand's native vertebrate hosts and also identify factors that promote viral host jumping. Vertebrate covers every animal with a backbone, but Stephanie is just looking at a few. In particular, I'm only focusing on tuatara, bats, as well as skinks and geckos and then eels. So, yeah, just those ones currently. But other people in my research group are looking at other range of vertebrates as well. And her work is all about extending that virus family tree. The goal is to be able to sort of uncover the viromes of these native hosts and be able to discover what viruses they have, um, as well as yeah, identify whether certain factors such as like the location of where the species were sampled or the health of the animal has influenced the viral diversity that we can see within those species. And so are you looking to see what viruses are in there in general? Are you specifically trying to find new New Zealand-only viruses? We're trying to do both. So yeah, we're trying to identify what viruses are in there, whether or not they are novel or whether they have been discovered before and also can be identified in the tuatara. So yeah, we're identifying both novel and non-novel viruses. So while she has a number of different native animal viromes she wants to investigate, Stephanie started her work on the tuatara. To do this, she worked with cloacal swabs that were collected by another PhD student from a place called Stevens Island, which is right at the top of Te Waipaunomu. We specifically chose Stevens Island because that is one of the largest populations of tuatara to date. So on Stevens Island there's around 30,000 to 50,000 tuatara Whereas on some of the other offshore islands, there's only between like 10 and 100. So it was a lot easier to sample them. Like Janelle, when she got the swabs, Stephanie extracted the RNA, sent them off for sequencing, and then waited to get the data back. And here's the thing. When we think of genome sequencing, it's tempting to imagine a machine listing off all the letters in one nice long piece of DNA or RNA. 
And then the scientists can come along and pick up this list of letters, nicely written down in one long set, and figure out what's going on. But that's not how it works. Actually, what happens is that multiple copies of bits and pieces of the DNA or RNA are read. So when it comes back, you need to put it back together. So what researchers like Stephanie will get back are something she refers to as raw reads. So we get the raw reads back and essentially these are just like really small fractions of what the entire sort of transcripts could be like because they've all been broken up. So it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. They've all been broken up into tiny little pieces and we want to put that jigsaw puzzle back together. So we compare overlapping reads. So there'll be like if two reads have a sequence that slightly overlaps, then we can identify that and then sort of force those two jigsaw puzzles back together to form an entire picture. So that way we can get raw reads and turn them into longer contexts or transcripts. So that's the first stage of the analysis is to assemble those um, contexts. Contig is a jargon word used in genomics that comes from the word contiguous. As Stephanie described, they're just sets of RNA sequence that overlap in a way that tells you what a long stretch of sequence is. Not necessarily the whole jigsaw, but a group of pieces, like getting all the edges in place. And Stephanie has potentially all kinds of different RNA in there. Maybe from bacteria, or fungi, or from beetles or spiders of the Tuatara 8. So the next step for her is to identify those virus-looking sequences. After we get the longer contacts and assemble those, we then compare them to databases that contain a wide range of known sequences, and then that's when we're able to identify whether or not they share sequence similarity with viral sequences or not. And if they do, then potentially they are viral sequences or viral contacts that we've identified. And then we only take the viral sequences and then we analyse those further and start um, aligning those and comparing them to viral sequences in yeah, known viral families or orders and try to figure out whether they sort of group with a specific family or order um, to sort of identify them further. Then she can start figuring out the family tree of the viruses she has found and whether she's discovered any new viruses. So we found 50 potentially novel um, Tuatara-associated viruses and they were spanning a wide range of viral families um, as well as orders. What makes them novel? Like how different does a virus have to be? Because presumably they've all evolved from some kind of virus. It's quite difficult to categorise which is novel and which isn't. So there's a committee that is like an international committee and they've sort of categorised anything that shares less than 90% amino acid similarity is novel. Amino acids are what make up proteins, and these are coded into the RNA sequences. So Stephanie has potentially found 50 viruses that have less than 90% similarity to everything else in the database. She calls them Tuatara-associated, because what she can't say for certain is that the Tuatara is definitely the host. Because maybe the host is actually the beetle that the Tuatara had for dinner the day it was swabbed. But she's hoping that what she's found can add another little bit to what we know about the diversity of viruses. 
They'll be added to the, eventually, if they get submitted and approved, they'll be added to the ICTV, which is the International Committee's um, sort of database of viruses that have been discovered and classified so far. And currently, there's only around just under 10,500 viruses that have been classified, but there's estimated to be 1 times 10 to the power of 31 viruses on Earth. So, yeah, it's mind-blowing how many viruses we still have to discover around like 99.99% of the virusphere is still to be discovered. But if we were to go looking for all of those different viruses, like what what can we learn? What can we gain? So it's important to discover viruses because currently it's kind of like a paradox. We can only discover what we already know in a sense because we need to be able to compare to databases of the known sequences. So because we know so little we can't actually be able to discover that much. So, that, for example, like with my Tuatara um, analysis, there may be more viruses in my data, but we just can't anal- like identify them currently because they don't share significant sequence similarity to known viruses. So it's really important to continue to discover these viruses for that reason, as well as to discover how viruses evolve over time. And also that's important in terms of um, identifying how viruses could potentially jump into hosts, which again is important in terms of how viruses can jump into humans and cause disease. When discussing this with Gemma Geegan, she had an example from work that had previously been done in the lab on something called lamprey reddening syndrome. It seems like it's a hemorrhagic um, sort of syndrome that often is fatal for lamprey. And of course, these are, are an important Taonga species and um, they keep dying and we don't know why. And so we worked collaboratively to see if we could identify a pathogen in these species. And we were able to identify actually a new coronavirus that was in these pouch lamprey. Um, now, pouch lamprey are are really, really ancient host species. They are jawless fish, so all jawed fish evolved from them and all vertebrates evolved from jawed fish. So we were fish once, you know, <laughs> and so we found that not just in lamprey, but lots of fish species have coronaviruses. And up until just, you know, maybe 2020, um, when there was sort of less focus on on the family of coronaviruses, we really only thought they infected mammals and birds. No one thought to look anywhere else. And that's the kind of the case, that's the story that we're seeing of all viruses. They're, we didn't really think to look, but as soon as we look elsewhere, we see those viruses in other species. So fish tend to carry probably more viruses than any other class of vertebrate. They're the evolutionary ancestor of all vertebrates, but they also carry the viruses that we carry as well. And they're the evolutionary ancestors of the viruses that we have. So we found things like ancestors of Ebola virus in fish and flu in fish and, um, of course, coronavirus in fish. And so it really helps us understand, you know, how long these viruses have been around for and how we understand the potential host range of these viruses. Because if we find, you know, Ebola virus, we've, we've only really thought infected mammals. Finding it in fish means that, you know, where else is this virus? And so trying to understand just the broad host range of these viruses really just betters our knowledge of of their evolutionary history 
And when we're talking about predicting what the next pandemic is, we really want to understand what kind of hosts carry these viruses. But our knowledge of the of the host range of most viruses is just limited because we haven't looked before. But if viruses can be found in a wide host range, the key question is, how do they get there? What pushes them to host jump? To move and infect a new host, like birds or monkeys or bats or us? That is the question I hope to answer. I mean, we don't know a lot about the mechanisms of host jumping, but we know that viruses want to transmit onwards to find new cells and things. And if it can find that in a different host type and be successful in terms of adapting genetically and ecologically to that new host population and have success in that population, then it's, um, it's going to try and do that. And host jumping is extremely common among all viruses, not just coronaviruses, but all viruses love to jump host species. Um, and we see that throughout the evolutionary history of all virus families. And coronavirus is just, you know, one that has been in the spotlight. But all viruses that have infected humans or do infect humans will ultimately have their origins in, in animals. But we don't know where the vast majority of these viruses have come from. We've only really revealed such a minute fraction of that host range so far. They replicate rapidly. They mutate quickly. They move to different hosts. For Gemma Geegan, this is what fascinates her about viruses. They are examples of real-time evolution. And maybe even where it all began. I guess it's the simplest form of life, right? I mean, you can argue that viruses aren't alive, and that's fine. Because um, <laughs> they do need a host, right? So... But there is a theory that viruses have been around since the RNA world. So before we had DNA organisms, there was RNA. And, and RNA viruses sort of were part of that world. Um, so they probably were here when the first forms of life were here. And they are quite simple. <laughs> However, they do have parallels with other living organisms like us. They evolve like everything else, but they're, they're probably the best exemplars of evolution by natural selection because their evolutionary processes happen so rapidly that we can see them happening in front of our eyes. This is the way that life evolves, but with viruses it just is completely accelerated. Thanks to Dr. Gemma Geegan, Dr. Janelle Weiranga and Stephanie Waller, all from the Department of Microbiology at the University of Otago. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, and thanks to Liz Garten for editing help, as well as to Our Changing World assistant producer Ellen Rikers for her behind-the-scenes work on the show. Sound engineering was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast provider and you can check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai tō wiki. Hold up. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.